Our Old Testament reading today is from Exodus 40. The Lord spoke to Moses. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the Ark of the Covenant, and you shall screen the Ark with the curtain. You shall bring in the table and arrange its setting. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Covenant and set up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it shall become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar shall be most holy. You shall also anoint the basin with its stand and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the sacred vestments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put tunics on them and anoint them as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood through all generations to come. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. <clears throat> then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and even pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and so that we ask 
that you would be with us and bless us now as we open your scriptures. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So today we're talking about the glory of God's presence, which is very important for us, I think, to be thinking about and talking about. You know, so whether we're thinking about our own discipleship as followers of Jesus and how we can go deeper with God and be more formed fully into the likeness of Christ, or whether we're thinking about the church's mission to bless the world with the life and love of Christ and how we as a church community can participate more meaningfully and more effectively with God in what God is up to in the world, or even if we're thinking about the way we relate to one another in the community of faith itself, whether we're thinking about this congregation and how we are united as this one family of Resurrection Philadelphia, or we're thinking about the church at large and how we see ourselves and uh, and the relation in relation to other people who profess the name of Christ, we need to be brought back to the glory of God's presence. The reflection quote at the beginning of your bulletin um, from Martin Laird is a, a beautiful one, just says this, God is too simple to be absent. It is we who, with complicated and cluttered minds, remain unaware that this foundational light is flowering perpetually in the fertile and unfathomable right now. In other words, we need to be reminded that God is not far away. God is not absent. It is often we who are far away or absent because of our complicated and cluttered minds and lives and being recalled into God's presence and to have our gaze fixed afresh on the glory of God made known to us most fully in Jesus is what we deeply need. If we're going to grow as disciples, if we're going to grow more connected in the right ways as a church community, if we're going to be participating with God and what God is doing in the world, we need to behold the glory of God in Christ and be reoriented to all things through him. And Exodus 40 becomes this episode. It's an episode in the story that draws our focus in a unique way to the glory of God's presence. And so I want us to just take a few minutes to drop into the story and then consider how we might discover something here that's actually really, really important for our lives today. So let's appreciate this scene in Exodus. God finally comes to meet his people in this place of worship that they've been constructing over the course of the year leading up to this moment, okay? And so we, we saw last week a lot of the work of preparing that spot, that tent of meeting, right, and all the, the detailed instructions. And we saw that 13 of the last 16 chapters of the book of Exodus are devoted to the details, first around the instructions for this tent, and then around the actual building of it. And we spent some time reflecting last week on some of that preparing for God's presence. And let's be honest, those chapters are really boring to read at first, right? I mean, it's a lot of detail. And if you just read the book of Exodus, you know, the, it, it starts with a bang. You, you come out and you're reading about this burning bush and the plagues and the Passover and the crossing of the sea and Moses meeting God at Sinai. And it's just like big drama, right? Big episodes. And you get to this section around the tabernacle and it feels a little bit like you're slamming on the brakes. Uh, and you get to these chapters that are just all about like measurements of curtains and, you know, specifications for curtain rods and rings and stuff like that. 
But if we keep reading, what we realize is, oh no, actually, the reason a third of the book is devoted to the construction of the tabernacle is that this is actually, all the drama is actually leading up to the real big high drama of the book. All that other stuff, right? God rescuing Israel, God bringing, through, bringing them through the sea, God giving of the law at Sinai. All this is preparation for the main event, which is when God comes down to live among his people. God makes his home among them. And so we come to the end of chapter 40, at the end of the book of Exodus. And after all the preparation is done, and after Moses has finished the work, the cloud covers the tent, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, and a new day dawns in Israel because the Lord has made his home among them. At long last, heaven and earth kiss after a long separation, and the hope of the world is made visible right at the center of their camp. And this moment of God's glorious filling of the tabernacle with his presence happens one year to the day after God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And after all these ups and downs and failure and forgiveness and confusion and clarity and doubt, now at the end of that long year, as the dust settles, God comes to meet with his people in their place of worship and he ushers in this new beginning this new era for his people. And when he, when he does that, what happens? What do we see? Well, we see something really important, and it's just this, that the glory of God's presence becomes the primary way that God's people orient their lives in their worship of God, in their living together in community, in the work that they do each day, in trusting God for guidance and provision. You see, the wilderness that they're in is virtually uninhabitable land. This is not a territory that has a track record of sustaining people. Yet God sustains his people in this desert place for 40 years before leading them into fruitful land. And the glory of God's presence is the centerpiece of Israel's life in the wilderness. And when God's presence filled the tabernacle, the people, they would stay and set up camp there. And when the cloud of God's presence moved, they moved. It didn't matter if where the cloud stopped, if there was water, if there was food, it had the Lord. And so they stayed and the Lord sustained them. The glory of God's presence was their life. Also, the encampments of the tribes of Israel encircled the tabernacle in a very orderly and particular way. And so what happened, you see, is like the orientation of the people to the presence of the Lord became the thing that determined their orientation to one another in the camp. And now as the story goes on, we'll see that the people get really tired of their unsettled experience of life in the wilderness. And they grow, they grow tired of trusting God. They grow tired of focusing their life and their allegiance on the glory of God's presence. And what we'll see as the story keeps going is that they're going to become nostalgic for Egypt. They're going to actually like yearn for the leeks and the onions that they used to eat when they were slaves back when they lived in a place where agriculture worked, right? Not the desert where they currently live. Their selective memory, it doesn't recall the backbreaking labor or the deplorable conditions of slavery. What they remember is the menu, what was available to eat in a land that brought forth real vegetation. And maybe you can relate, right? I can relate. 
We have been living in a wilderness moment for quite a while now, right? We've been living in this unsettled state of pandemic life for a really long time, and many of us are weary. And furthermore, as a church community, it's not just the pandemic that's disrupted our life, but, you know, it, it, our life in the world is completely disrupted by pandemic and has been for a long time. But as a church, right, we've been disrupted by pandemic. I mean, even if it's just the fact that we're spaced and masked sitting in a room like this, we just don't hear the congregational voice singing the way we're used to. We can't meet and gather in the ways that have been really the backbone of our communal life together in the past. But we've also our life together in this season has been shaped also by this church merger situation that uh, has undoubtedly strengthened our church. That's undeniable as you just look at kind of where we are relative to where we would be likely had we not merged. Yet at the same time, that movement of coming together into one has not come without its losses for each of us, right? And so no matter where you were in the world in 2019 or where you were in the church in 2019, what you know now, what you experience now in 2022 in the world and in the church is not that, right? It's not that. And there's a real grief that comes with those losses. And in our grief of those losses, it's very easy to retreat into the nostalgia of what we loved about what was, right? It's very easy to do that, to pine after whatever leeks and onions are yours, that you remember so sweetly. This wilderness, this intermediate state that we're in that feels unsettled and probably feels unsustainable, it's an uncomfortable place to be. Yet, it is the glory of God's presence among us that's going to be the only source of life, of joy, contentment, unity, purpose, mission, right? The only source of those things that can touch our place of deepest longings is the glory of God's presence among us. That's the only thing that's going to enable us to live faithfully and fruitfully as God's people in the midst of an unsettled and unsettling wilderness experience. And this is where I think this part of the biblical story is so helpful for us today. Because if we're going to be sustained spiritually ourselves, and if we're going to be the kind of church community that has something meaningful to offer to our neighbors, I think what we need is a renewed sense of awe and wonder rekindled by our experience of the glory of God's presence in our midst. And we need to embrace our calling to be wilderness pilgrims who find in God alone our home, our unity, our direction, our provision, our purpose. And as we do that, as we seek to find all of those things, not in what we're nostalgic for, what we've loved in the past, but in God alone who meets us and is with us now, I think we'll begin to experience something of what Rowan Williams describes in his book, Where God Happens, as the unity of experiencing the shared gaze upon Christ. This is what he writes in that book. Another question is where the unity of the church lies or in what that unity consists. I believe it is a unity that fundamentally exists in the shared gaze toward Christ. 
and through, and through Christ to the Father. If we believe our unity comes from that looking together into a mystery and occasionally nudging one another and saying, look at that, it can help us to feel how the unity we enjoy is not primarily about institutional uniformity, saying the same words all the time. The unity is found in the common direction we are looking, but we must be willing to nudge one another and describe what we're seeing. Can we opt in to that, to a, a pursuit of God who pursues us, a, a shared gaze with one another where what we're really about as a community is not will this preference or that preference win, but will we gaze together upon Christ who is the glory of God revealed to us? Christ, of course, is the great fulfillment of God's presence in our midst, or we might say what God began in the tabernacle, God fulfilled in Christ. Or even we might say it another way, what God began in creation and fulfilled in the tabernacle, he fulfilled in Christ. Lots of ways to read the story. God in person in our world, Jesus, who has come as a human being to tabernacle among us, John says, and at that moment where Christ stepped into the world, he says that in him we have, we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. We need to be reoriented to the glory of God's presence among us in Christ. And as we, as we do that, as we fix our gaze on him, as we seek him, the one who seeks us, what we begin to see is that the glory of the Lord is not just some like abstract, the light and the darkness, the thunder and lightning, this God is so much bigger and greater. It's not only that, but that that God who is so much greater, the creator of all things, that God who is the light of the world, who is the source of all goodness and peace, that God has come to make himself known in a human person, to live in the world among us. And that in him, this person of Jesus, we behold the glory of God. We don't just behold it in, in seeing it, but the glory of God begins to actually touch us in new and incredibly human ways. And as we begin to imagine what it would look like for our own lives to be caught up in the story of God and caught up in the movement of God's spirit, we see in the very human life of Jesus what that can look like displayed in the world. As we track with Israel through the story, we'll see that whenever they find their home and their direction and their unity in God, they tend to thrive. And whenever they try to create those things on their own apart from God, the story takes a dark turn and things begin to fall apart. Yet what we see as we keep reading that story forward is just that the faithfulness of God to persistently pursue his people never fails. God doesn't quit on his people. He doesn't quit on us. God is faithful to make his presence in the midst of his people. That's why we were created, and that's the promise that God will fulfill. What God began at the tabernacle, he fulfills in Jesus. And what we see is that our pathway to God's presence, as we think about the story in connection with our own lives, our pathway to God's presence doesn't begin with our own seeking God. It begins with God seeking us, right? How does Israel get to this moment where they've built this tent and the glory of the Lord fills it? Well, God sent his prophet Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, right? God went after them. 
And not only that, but God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to the people. And God raised up priests, Aaron and his sons, to tend to that house and to make space for God to be present and to intercede for the people. And it said, when Moses had obeyed all the Lord commanded him, then the cloud came and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But friends, we are in a different spot in the story in which Jesus has already come to be the prophet and to be the priest, right? We come not only listening to Moses, but we come listening to Moses and Jesus and Jesus' take on Moses. We come to hear God in person in our world speaking forth into the world the very word of God. We come with the high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness, who has passed through the heavens and made a place for us with God and who has made us to be the tabernacle of the Lord. We ride on his coattails, the greater Moses, the greater Aaron, the priest, the prophet, the one who's gone before us, the one in whom the glory of God has been made known. And it is in him that we abide in the presence of the Lord. And as we think about our own discipleship, as we think about our own connectedness and community, and as we think about the mission of our church and like, what will we be and how will we be useful to our neighbors? Beholding the glory of God in Christ and abiding in his presence is just about as foundational as anything could possibly be to our renewal as disciples, as community, and as people involved with God and what God is doing in the world. You know, we've been doing this... um, workshop on Wednesdays, or we, we, we've finished it now, but we were doing a workshop through the January season um, called Resurrecting Church, Recovering Mission and Recalibrating Practices in Our Rapidly Changing Context, or something like that. And one of the things we've been thinking about is how what we need and what our neighbors need from the church is kind of the same thing. We need to be going deeper ourselves in our own life of discipleship so that what we're experiencing of God is not just that we go to church, but that the real stuff of our lives is actually being brought into connection with the healing, renewing presence of God. That we're able to meaningfully make spiritual sense of our lives, whether it's our hopes and dreams, our longings or our losses, our pain, our suffering, that we need to be able to bring those pieces of our own lives into the presence of God to relate to them afresh, to be reoriented to those things afresh in light of the glory of the presence of the Lord. So that we are experiencing the goodness of the Lord and the depth of his presence and power. So that as we're in conversations with our neighbors, the way that we talk about God isn't just through like theological jargon or some articulate explanation of this principle or that argument or whatever, but we're able to talk very humanly and very authentically about how God has been present to us in the real stuff of our own wilderness lives and how we have been able to taste and see the goodness of the Lord as we've recognized that it is not our circumstances that sustain us, but it is the Lord who's present to us in the midst of them. That is where our own renewal comes. And that is the hope of the world. And as we got into this workshop, one of the, one of the quotes that came up comes from John Seale in his book, The New Copernicans. I'll share it with you now. The, this is a book that he wrote 
around young people as he's, as he's imagining or, or, or trying to understand why are young people leaving the church in droves? Why is it that, that we are seeing a drop-off in teens and 20-somethings and even 30-somethings where the people are disassociating with the church and organized religion at a rate faster than anything we've ever seen before? Why is that? And Seal says it's not because young people are spiritually disinterested, and it's not just because they're like harder of heart or something than previous generations. It's not it at all. It's that they've seen the church as a dead-end road that doesn't have much to offer them. Because instead of the depth of basking in the glory of God's presence and, and experiencing the renewal in his midst, what they've experienced in the church is religiosity. That's boring and doesn't seem to touch on the things that they crave most deeply. Seal writes this, Few see the connection between their passion for justice, appreciation of beauty, and longing for love as a desire for God. Few will make the spiritual connection. However, most would be aware that it is important to them to enfold their own story into a larger frame of meaning, even if it is the cliched aspiration of, quote, making the world a better place. However, there are some who take this restlessness into the spiritual realm. And when they do, it is not typically to traditional religious expressions. They live in a been there, done that world, and in most cases, see the Christian church, uh, in most cases, the, the Christian church is written off as a spiritual cul-de-sac. It's not that they're so against the church, unless they've had bad experiences with it in their past, but that they see no real potential value there. The invitation for us, as we consider the glory of the presence of the Lord, the invitation is for us to be renewed, for our own sense of awe and wonder to be rekindled in the presence of the living God who is here, so that what we're experiencing in the presence of Christ is actually spiritually transformative and powerful and transformative of our whole lives applied concretely in all the stuff where we're experiencing God's presence in the real stuff of our lives. That we may be the kind of church that's not a spiritual cul-de-sac for people on their journey, but a place of spiritual renewal and power where those who are hungry may be fed, those who thirst may find relief, and those who crave God may actually find in us a place where God happens. Let's pray. God, your church needs your help. Father, we need you. And we ask that you would be with us. And we know that you are. But we pray that you would give us grace and that by your spirit, that you would actually awaken us and enliven us and draw us into the glory of your presence in such a way that we come alive and that we become more and more a people who seek after you, who hunger for you, who thirst for you, who find our home in you, and who become maximally interested in you and not all the other things that clutter our minds and hearts and distract us from you, the source of life. 
We need that ourselves, and we know that our neighbors need us to become a people whose roots run deep into your living waters and who are making sense of our lives in real ways in your presence. And that we wouldn't just be church people doing churchy stuff, but we would be made alive together with Christ, living as those reoriented to the glory of your presence in every way imaginable. Move among us and do this work in us, we pray, through the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.